I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Timothy Leary gave psychedelic drugs a bad reputation with his advice to turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. For decades, it was virtually impossible for researchers to study the effects of psychedelic compounds. That was partly because there was no funding and partly due to the classification as controlled substances. Recent studies have demonstrated promise for compounds like psilocybin to ease anxiety resulting from a cancer diagnosis. Will use of these agents result in therapeutic advances for smoking cessation, post-traumatic stress disorder, or even major depression? If these compounds prove helpful, is society ready? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, psychedelics and mental health. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, an experimental drug for Alzheimer's disease called lecanemab has produced positive results in a clinical trial. The manufacturer is touting the effectiveness of this anti-amyloid antibody by stating that it can reduce cognitive decline 27% as measured on a numeric scale. The trial lasted 18 months and included about 1,800 participants. They all had mild Alzheimer's disease or cognitive impairment. This is the first anti-amyloid drug to show a statistically significant benefit against cognitive decline. Overall, people on the drug scored 0.45 points better than those on placebo. The scale is scored from 0 to 18 and includes measurements of problem-solving, memory, and personal care. A previous drug, aducanumab, improved participants' scores by 0.39 points on the same scale. Although the Alzheimer's Association has applauded the trial results, some experts are skeptical whether the drug will make an important difference clinically. Roughly one in five of those on the drug had results on brain scans indicating swelling or bleeding. The manufacturer will be presenting more detailed results in November. A new study reinforces the health benefits of coffee drinking. Investigators analyzed data from the U.K. Biobank. The roughly 450,000 volunteers were periodically queried about their coffee-drinking behaviors. These subjects were followed for more than 12 and a half years. To many cardiologists' surprise, people who drank ground or instant coffee up to five cups a day had a lower risk of irregular heart rhythms, including atrial fibrillation. Those drinking decaf, on the other hand, did not experience this benefit. However, those individuals drinking two to three cups of decaffeinated coffee daily had the lowest risk of cardiovascular disease. Even the people who drank ground or instant coffee had a lower risk of heart attacks or strokes and premature death. The authors conclude, quote, mild to moderate coffee intake of all types should not be discouraged, but rather considered part of a healthy lifestyle. Male coffee drinkers may benefit in another way. A study utilizing a database from seven trials with more than 5,700 prostate cancer patients suggested that coffee drinkers had longer survival times. 
The finding was especially strong for men with localized disease rather than advanced disease. In addition, men who metabolize caffeine quickly appeared to get more benefit from drinking more coffee. Those not carrying the CYP1A2AA genotype got little or no extra benefit, although the scientists did not detect any harm either. A preliminary study published in the journal Academic Pediatrics reports a link between early childhood vaccines that use aluminum as an adjuvant and a risk of asthma before the age of five. Aluminum is frequently added to vaccines to trigger a stronger immune reaction. This mineral has been used in vaccines for decades, but some researchers have expressed concern about its safety. Workers exposed to aluminum are more likely to have asthma and airway inflammation. Animal research has also indicated that aluminum may pose a pulmonary problem. In the new research, babies and toddlers who received vaccines with at least 3 milligrams of aluminum were 36% more likely to be diagnosed with asthma compared to youngsters who were exposed to less than 3 milligrams. Vaccine experts urge caution in interpreting the results until further studies can shed light on this possible association. Tens of millions of Americans have been diagnosed with hypertension. As a result, many take prescribed medications to control their blood pressure. Many healthcare professionals encourage such patients to monitor their blood pressure at home. A new study reports that fewer than half of the hypertensive individuals surveyed actually used a home monitor on a regular basis. The investigators recommend developing protocols for home blood pressure monitoring, including frequency, and urge patients to share readings with their clinicians. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. For thousands of years, healers have sought out plants and fungi with psychoactive properties. These were often used in religious rituals. During the 1960s, psychedelic drugs like LSD got a bad reputation. What little research had been done pretty much disappeared for decades. Now, respected researchers are exploring the potential of compounds like psilocybin to help a range of hard-to-treat conditions. To learn more about how psychedelics work, we are speaking with Dr. Brian Roth. He is the Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Director of the NIMH Psychoactive Drug Screening Program at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Dr. Roth is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the National Academy of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. He's also a member of the Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Brian Roth. Hi, how are you? Great to chat with you today. We're doing very well, and we're very much looking forward to talking to you. Dr. Roth, in the late 1960s, I was working in a neuropharmacology lab at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. And the, 
the people there, my mentors, my colleagues were trying to better understand the underlying causes of mental illness. And because compounds like LSD and mescaline and psilocybin caused hallucinations, some of the neuroscientists there thought that they might offer insights. Those chemicals, those compounds might offer insights into schizophrenia, which also causes hallucinations. Now, I think, you know, looking back over the last 40, 50 years, in retrospect, I think that concept was probably way too simplistic. You've been studying the neuropharmacology of psychedelics for decades yourself. Uh, You know, how might these intriguing compounds lead to new treatments for mental illness? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and uh, thanks for the uh, for the reminder. So, actually, in the I guess the early '60s, uh, my mom had her first episode of schizophrenia, and uh, when I was just uh, I don't know five or six, and of course that had a had a huge impact on me. And uh, when I heard when I was a teenager, when I heard that uh, drugs like LSD induced a model, what they called at the time, a model psychosis. That that was actually my first sort of introduction to them. Um, I became very interested in how they might have their effects on the brain um, in the hopes that this one day might lead to better treatments for uh, folks like my mother. And uh, I would say, you know, actually they have. Um, so it's it's sort of a little well-known fact that many, uh, perhaps most of the drugs that are currently used for treating people with schizophrenia are drugs called atypical antipsychotic drugs. And uh, virtually all of them share the property of being able to block the activity of LSD. So um, in addition to other, other sites in the brain. So it's, I would say, you know, at the time it was a very simplistic idea but there was a kernel of truth to it. And, you know, that, that has led uh, really to the, to the revolution and the treatment of schizophrenia that, that started occurring in the 1990s with the newer antipsychotic drugs. And I would say for many, many years, my interest in the receptors that, uh, or the sites in the brain that uh, drugs like LSD and other psychedelics interact with was basically to find drugs that block their effects. and more recently, uh, in the last uh, six or seven years or so, there have been a number of, uh, I would say, preliminary, technically they're called phase two clinical trials, showing that drugs like psilocybin and LSD may have uh, truly miraculous effects in treating uh, depression uh, and anxiety and really hold the promise for revolutionizing our treatment of these uh, very serious disorders. So you have this really interesting situation where drugs that block the effects of LSD apparently are effective in treating schizophrenia, and drugs that mimic the effects of LSD or LSD itself may hold promise for really transforming how we treat depression and similar disorders. So it's, it's really an exciting time for psychedelic research and psychedelic therapy. Well, we really want to learn more about those phase two trials in a little bit. But first, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the history and background of psychedelic compounds 
as a cultural anthropologist, I'm aware that there are quite a few cultures around the world that have used plants with psychedelic properties as part of their healing rituals, going back probably thousands of years. Often there's a spiritual component to the ritual, and I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about the history of psychedelic compounds. Yeah, another great question. So what we know uh, from the, I would say, the archaeological record is that there are images of what appear to be psychedelic mushrooms in both the Americas and uh, Europe and Asia, uh, going back many thousands of years, sort of in the pre, uh, before the Christian era, thousand years or so BCE. And we know that uh, from, I guess, historical records that came when the Americas were invaded or conquered or uh, taken over by Europeans, that the use of psychedelic medications, uh, including uh, psilocybin and uh, cactus uh, peyote, were, I I wouldn't say they were widespread, but they're fairly common in uh, sort of pre-colonial America. And likely they were used for purposes of divination and shamanism, so healing rituals. They're also, uh, for many hundreds of years, um, there's been the use of the uh, hallucinogenic brew uh, ayahuasca in South America, which is used uh, mainly for healing purposes uh, by the local uh, shamans or curanderos. And uh, I would say Westerners uh, first heard about, my understanding is there were some missionaries um, in the, I guess, 1600s or 1500s that may have sampled uh, psychedelic drugs, and uh, they were immediately uh, banned by the church. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) they said there were evil spirits and the work of the devil, basically. So um, it that's, was, yeah, that's not too hard to uh, to imagine that the the Catholic Church probably would not have um, a- embraced that very well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Westerners really didn't um, discover these until the late eighteen hundreds. There was a an individual by the name of Hefter uh, who discovered the active ingredient of uh, peyote cactus, which is mescaline. In an interesting way, he was uh, purifying the compound uh, using a, a technique called paper chromatography, where, where basically you run extracts of a plant on a piece of filter paper, and he cut out various bands and ingested them, and he found the band that caused the effects that way. <laughs> so that was that was the discovery of mescaline, and uh, similarly, the discovery of LSD by Albert Hoffman was uh, sort of similarly accidental. He was apparently just waited out and accidentally ingested a very small amount of it and uh, had the first psychedelic trip. After that, um, in the late uh, 40s and early 50s, uh, psychedelics were used a lot by what we might call the intelligentsia. Uh, So the upper strata of society, there was... um, a type of psychotherapy at the time called psycholytic psychotherapy or psychedelic psychotherapy where individuals would have usually modest doses of psychedelic drugs. So Cary Grant famously apparently had hundreds of LSD sessions, as did many others. And then, of course, in the late 50s and 60s, these became popular 
among mainly younger people. Uh, and uh, this led to the, uh, to the hippie movement and ultimately the uh, criminalization of psychedelic drugs in the late 60s. Well, uh, you know, Dr. Roth, I, I find it fascinating that my mentors were studying various hallucinogens, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline in the in the 60s. But then by the end of the 1960s and early 70s, that all came to a screeching halt. And I'm wondering how how you got started studying psychedelic receptors, what, in the 1980s? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I had this interest since I was a um, basically a teenager. And I went to when I went to undergrad, my uh, my goal was ultimately to become a psychiatrist and and understand what's going on in the brain and and ultimately to create better treatments for these. And um, so I had this as I had this as a background. And when I was an undergrad, um, I went to this very small school in Montana, and we had a visiting professor who came uh, from Oregon. And he was telling us about how psychoactive drugs work in the brain. And he said they all interact with what are called receptors. And I just got galvanized by, by that idea that uh, these drugs could mediate their effects through a single molecule in the brain. And, and that's when I began to study, uh, basically to devote my, uh, my career to studying receptors but it wasn't until the 80s that uh early 80s i guess 1983 that uh i actually was able to begin work on studying the receptors that psychedelic drugs uh have their actions at you are listening to dr brian roth the michael hooker distinguished professor of pharmacology at the university of north carolina school of medicine and director of the nimh psychoactive drug screening program at the eshelman school of pharmacy at unc after the break, we'll find out about the new drugs Dr. Roth is developing based on his research. Is the psychedelic experience critical to the healing activity of these medicines? Psilocybin is now in phase two clinical trials. What does that mean? It seems that the whole field of neuropharmacology is changing. What should we expect? We'll get a bird's eye view of the promise and the perils of psychedelic pharmacology. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. 
More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, that's G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today we're talking about the latest research on psychedelic compounds. Many medications used to treat severe anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress disorder leave a lot to be desired. These drugs are not always effective, but they may have debilitating side effects. Antidepressants, for example, often cause sexual dysfunction. Many can be difficult to discontinue because of withdrawal symptoms. Could a handful of therapeutic sessions, including treatment with a psychedelic compound, help people overcome long-lasting psychological traumas? Is it possible to develop new medicines that don't cause some of the negative reactions reported with traditional psychedelics? Our guest is Dr. Brian Roth. He's the Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Director of the NIMH Psychoactive Drug Screening Program at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Dr. Roth is a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the National Academy of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. He's also a member of the Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Roth, many of the current psychoactive treatments that we have uh, drugs for treating depression, anxiety, or even schizophrenia just really aren't all that effective, or at least that's the impression we've gotten. Perhaps we're mistaken. And of course, there are some worrisome side effects. So I'm wondering if you can offer us some idea of what the um, goals of the $26 million grant that you and your colleagues are working on, as I understand it, you're working on developing drugs based on your psychedelic research. Yeah. So, um, so the idea is that was, that was given to us as sort of a grand challenge was, is it possible to create a drug or drug-like compound that has the beneficial effects of psychedelic drugs, uh, apparently beneficial effects, which are uh, briefly uh, for depression, uh, it appears that a single dose of psilocybin uh, can induce a rapid, uh, dramatic, and enduring effect on depression, uh, where a large number of the patients uh, basically are no longer depressed. So truly remarkable, uh, remarkable effects. And what we're trying to find out is, um, is it possible to create uh, medications that have the same really transformative effect without the psychedelic actions? 
So in a nutshell, that's it. So basically to make a drug that's effective like psilocybin or LSD for treating these illnesses, but is not psychedelic. Now, I suspect that there are some people who would challenge you and say, but the psychedelic experience may be essential for the action of these medications, that it's not just a a matter of modifying neurotransmitters, a little more dopamine, a little less GABA, a little extra serotonin. You know, maybe maybe it is the experience itself that is having a therapeutic effect. How do you respond to them? So um, what I say is that's possible. And uh, it's also possible that it's not. And so what we're trying to do is, so technically, we're trying to test the hypothesis that it is possible to make a drug that's not psychedelic, that is therapeutic. So I would agree that, that basically we don't know. I would sort of put my, myself in the, in the camp of I'm waiting to see what the evidence is. And it may, in fact, be that the psychedelic experience is absolutely uh, essential for the therapeutic actions of these drugs. And um, that's fine. I would say that's fine. Um, the thing is, though, it is possible that it's not, and we just don't know. Uh, it's really important to answer the question because um, psychedelic drugs are not going to be for everybody. Um, so there are a number of uh, uh, sort of serious potential side effects that could occur with psychedelics. Um, just one sort of practical issue is if you have a history of schizophrenia or you have a family member, a first-degree family member with schizophrenia, generally we would recommend that you not take psychedelic drugs because of the increased risk of of, uh, causing psychosis. And so an individual like me, my family members, you know, God forbid if we we became depressed and needed, needed to take a psychedelic, it would it would not be uh, it would not be a good thing for us. We could potentially have a uh, exacerbation of schizophrenia, and then there are you know there are just many many. So I don't treat patients anymore, but but when I did, uh, I treated many many people with with serious depression. And you know, frankly, there are a lot of people out there that don't want to take a psychedelic <laughs> drug <laughs> for their mm-hmm. depression. They would they would they would sort of tell me you know, just let's get a treatment, you know, some sort of, they don't want to engage in psychotherapy or, or, or anything else, you know, just give me a pill to make me better doc. So a lot of, a lot of, you know, despite, I would say the promise and, and really huge therapeutic potential of these compounds, there still is going to be a huge swath of the, of the world's population that will not have the means, uh, the financial means to, to be engaged in what ultimately will be a, a fairly expensive medical intervention and, and individuals that, uh, that simply can't take them because of some uh, contraindication. So I think it's something we need to answer. Uh, and, you know, hopefully in a, in a couple of years, we'll have the answer to this very, very important question. Dr. Roth, I wonder if you can tell us about the phase two trials of psilocybin. First of all, please explain to us what is a phase two trial? And secondly, tell us what is psilocybin being tested to treat? Yeah, so a phase two trial is um, 
is an early stage uh, clinical trial where typically the safety uh, of the drug and the doses of the drug are tested. And there also may be uh, evaluations that are done for the potential therapeutic activity of the drug. And phase two trials are are generally considered to be suggestive and not definitive. So usually, the uh, typically the FDA will ask for what's called a phase three clinical trial, which would involve hundreds and hundreds of patients at at multiple sites uh, before they would determine whether to make a recommendation for for a medication. So phase two trials are sort of early trials, um, and they're they're. I would say most people would say they're suggestive rather than definitive for for a particular uh, therapeutic indication. That being said, the phase two trials that have been done uh, with psilocybin have focused mainly on depression uh, related to a terminal illness or uh, treatment, what's called treatment-resistant depression. And the effects have been truly remarkable. You know, I'll, I'll say truly remarkable. I, I never used these terms before. Uh, clinically, but but they have been. What they've shown is that either a single dose of psilocybin or two doses of psilocybin uh, bracketed by psychotherapy and a guided experience with um, uh, therapists induces a rapid, enduring, and dramatic recovery of depression in most of the patients. So really unlike anything uh, we've ever seen. Uh, it's it's truly astounding. It sounds as though this is, rather than being a drug that you just take and it makes you better, as you were describing earlier, this is really a therapeutic experience that's facilitated by the psychedelic drug. Is that a, an appropriate understanding? Uh, that's one way to think about it. As I say, we really we really don't know to what extent the parameters of the psychotherapy or therapeutic interaction, um, what aspects those of those are key to the ultimate beneficial effect of these drugs. And I think, I think that's something that uh, probably people will be studying for many years uh, to come. Well, Dr. Roth, what I'd have to say is that what you're doing and the kind of work you're discussing is completely revolutionizing the treatment of of mental illness. It, it, it's making us rethink the whole field of neuropharmacology because I think up until now, the idea is, well, you have an imbalance. You know, there's some kind of biochemical abnormality in your brain and you need to take a drug like Prozac that'll be a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and it will readjust serotonin levels and you'll take it every day maybe for the rest of your life. That's sort of the old approach. What you're describing is something that is like one and done. Um, yeah. You know that you're they're actually doing something in the brain that is uh, reversing whatever has caused that quote unquote challenge, that depression, that and and it's not just depression. I mean, you've been looking at at things. Like cluster headaches, so you know yes. this is changing the whole field. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. What I, I I like to use the technical term a state transition. So basically, the person's state has changed. So so drugs like Prozac uh, and other medications that we use for treating depression 
which in my experience as a, as a psychiatrist actually worked amazingly well in many, many patients. Um, they induce this sort of very gradual change in, in one's sense of well-being. And, and we still don't, don't understand what's going on. Um, but as you say, individuals that are, that are on medications like Prozac, when they have a beneficial effect, they basically have to stay on the medication. And there are, of course, many, many side effects that, that uh, people can experience because of these. Whereas with psychedelics, it is truly, it's, you know, one dose and you're fine basically for at least a year. Um, we'll see if people will need tune-ups after that. But, you know, this, this is unlike anything. This is truly revolutionary. Can you tell us about your research with cluster headaches, please? Yeah. So um, I actually su occasionally suffer from cluster headaches. So I, I actually don't do research in it, but I've been following the literature very closely and was recently, I recently was the keynote speaker at the Headache Society meeting. And, um, well, you know, I'm going to ask you to very briefly describe what it's like, because we, we once had a headache expert on the show who said, I have patients who rub their faces raw because they were rubbing them on the carpet or banging them against a, a heater. He said the pain is just excruciating. Yeah. So what I tell people it's like for me is if you can imagine sticking a needle in the back of your eye. <laughs> it doesn't sound very... It's very really painful. painful. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it sounds awful. <laughs> it's awful. Yes. And there, I, I ran into this very interesting fellow you may want to interview at, at some point in time who run, has a website called Cluster Busters. And uh, what he told me is that he has now thousands, literally thousands of first-person accounts from individuals with uh, severe cluster headaches who have been treated, basically their cluster headaches have been treated with uh, what he's calling microdosing of, of psilocybin. So sort of moderate, modest non-psychedelic doses of psilocybin over a couple of week period. And um, there are the results now out from a phase two trial uh, at Yale that, that are finding the same thing. And so we have, we have this re really interesting situation where these drugs may not all, only be useful in, in treating disorders like depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, but also cluster headaches, migraine headaches, uh, and, and other things. Uh, they're, they're even being looked at now for, uh, the Lyme disease, the post Lyme disease syndrome, uh, which would be, which would be interesting there. There is some data that that these compounds may have anti-inflammatory activity as well. So it's it, you know it's really an exciting time, and when the clinical results come out, we'll we'll find out uh, you know which of these various indications actually are are going to be fruitful or not. Well, that really does sound exciting, and it's such a, a broad range that you've mentioned of possible things that could be helped. In summary. Can you just give us the promises and the perils of uh, psychedelic pharmacology for psychiatry? Yeah. So the promises are that these drugs will revolutionize the treatment of many, many serious uh, disorders. Um, so that's the promise in a nutshell. The peril is, A, we don't know for sure if this is true. We need, we need to have these large-scale clinical trials. 
And B, um, because there has been almost no research, no basic research on psychedelics for the last 40 years, it's possible that there are side effects that we have not yet anticipated that could occur once these uh, once these medications are basically rolled out to the large-scale use in the human population. Dr. Brian Roth, will you let us know about your research and the developments over the next several years so that we can let our listeners know what you discovered? Because there are some fascinating questions that you're addressing, and we really want to know the answers. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. And uh, hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have uh, data in humans on our compounds. Dr. Brian Roth, thank you ever so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. It was great. You've been listening to Dr. Brian Roth, the Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology at UNC School of Medicine and Director of the NIMH Psychoactive Drug Screening Program at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Dr. Roth is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the National Academy of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. He's also a member of the Leinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. What I love about the way in which Dr. Roth looks at this whole process is we're going to just keep an open mind. We're going to find out if this, if this is a psychedelic experience or a neurochemical experience. And I think, you know, approaching it with that that very clear, open-minded philosophy is just fantastic. And I'm also impressed that he calls it revolutionary. I think that's Yeah, that's intriguing. pretty exciting. Yeah. We turn now to Dr. Sandeep Nayak. He is assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. Dr. Nayak's research is focused primarily on investigating psychedelics as treatments for psychiatric conditions. For example, substance use disorders or mood disorders. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Sandeep Nayak. Uh, hello. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be here and discuss this topic. Dr. Nayak, psychedelic drugs have shown surprising promise for a range of conditions, addictions, mental health disorders, but there, there's still something so mysterious, almost mystical about their effects and they're commonly believed to provide unique insights into the nature of consciousness. Can you please tell us about the findings of your recent study? Right. Uh, there is a great deal of excitement about the empirical findings for a variety of psychiatric disorders, but obviously this uh, drug, psychedelic drugs, are not typical treatments. They have all kinds of other interesting effects. And as you mentioned, there is a great deal of belief that experiences that are occasioned by psychedelics proffer some unique truth or insight into the nature of a variety of things, including consciousness. And it's actually not all that clear why that, why that would be true. And yet, many people do have this belief. And so our uh, recent study. This is part of a, a larger project looking at the effects of psychedelics on uh, belief changes of various kinds. Was specifically looking at the extent to which psychedelic experiences may be associated with changes in 
attributions of consciousness. In other words, to what extent do people think that various entities such as animals, inanimate objects, plants, etc., are conscious? That's kind of an interesting idea um, that plants or inanimate objects would have consciousness. Can you tell us more? Sure. It's kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, in the industrialized West, in a materialist society, that is not the the normal default view that plants and um, inanimate objects, volcanoes, etc., have conscious awareness. However, you step back, you take a bit of a wider view throughout history and uh, the world, that that's probably more of a normative view. Um, when you look at small-scale societies, there, there are these such and, and animist religions, etc. Such beliefs are actually quite common. And for whatever reason, it anecdotally appeared that, and this is why we chose to study this, that these sorts of beliefs seem to be more common among people uh, who use psychedelics or people after using psychedelics. And so that that was kind of what we set our sights on in terms of looking at the uh, change in attribution of consciousness to various entities. What did you find? So, and again, this is part of a a larger project looking at other beliefs, and we've followed this up already in in another way, which hasn't been published yet. But this particular study looked at about sixteen hundred people who had already had a psychedelic experience, uh, who endorsed it being one that changed their beliefs in one way or another. And so this is one sort of slice of that, but we basically asked people to the extent to which they attributed consciousness to a range of entities. So this included themselves, other people, non-human primates, variety of animals, including insects, and then fungi, plants, and then inanimate natural and man-made objects. And so basically what we found was that there are quite large increases in sort of a Across the board, people were attributing greater consciousness, conscious awareness to all of these entities from before their experience to after, but that certain ones were much larger. Um, so, for example, we saw quite large increases in individuals' attribution of consciousness to insects, fungi, and plants in particular. Can you help us understand, please, Dr. Nyack? what a psychedelic experience was like for some of the participants in your study? Sure. So these, first off, these are not, I don't know what your run-of-the-mill psychedelic experience is, but these in particular, these participants endorsed having pretty profound uh, experiences. 70% rated the experience as being among the, the five most personally meaningful and or, or and or psychologically insightful experiences of their lives, and we we use a a questionnaire that assesses mystical experience, which we could talk more about if if that's of interest. But people scored quite high on the mystical experience questionnaire. So these are, as far as psychedelic experiences go, these are particularly meaningful, uh, particularly mystical ones, and. Not only that, we also found that the degree of mystical experience that people endorsed was associated with greater belief change. In other words, people who had more of a mystical type experience experienced greater change in their attribution of consciousness to these various entities. 
do you have any idea about the outcomes that might be associated with these changes in beliefs? In terms of mental health. You know, things like depression, anxiety. Uh, We've heard about people who have been given a terminal diagnosis. They may have cancer and only several months to live, and they are experiencing an existential crisis. How, How do these belief changes impact many of the people that have been studied? So this is a really crucial question that, unfortunately, we don't have a good answer to. There, there is a, and this isn't specifically talking about conscious beliefs, but there was a recent study on belief changes that showed that psychedelics do alter mystical, uh, metaphysical beliefs. And that was in healthy people. In other words, not patients, but there was an association between the degree of belief change and well-being. Now, psychedelics could very well improve well-being or improve depression, but separately cause belief changes. So whether those two things are actually related is unclear. But nonetheless, there's been a lot of discussion about this. I think it may have been Michael Pollan who raised this concept of maybe what if psychedelics are therapeutic by way of, you know, quote unquote, comforting delusions. In other words, what if they're proffering a very metaphysically comforting set of beliefs that are not necessarily true, but nonetheless therapeutic. And he posed the question, obviously there's no answer to that yet, but um, I I think it's kind of unclear the extent to which belief changes may or may not be uh, causing or not causing therapeutic effects. And it just speaks to how nascent this entire field is. We're just only just now beginning to dig into any of these questions. Dr. Nayak, a lot of neuropharmacologists like to think in terms of neurotransmitters, you know, serotonin, dopamine, GABA, norepinephrine, and they think, you know, everything can be reduced to, you know, how a drug or chemical is modifying neurochemistry in the brain. That's quite different from your research, which is actually looking at beliefs and how they change. So if you were trying to resolve a conflict between the neurochemists versus the psychotherapists and psychiatrists who are advocating a belief system change, how would, how how do you rationalize? How do you deal with these two camps? Well, from one perspective, there is no conflict. I mean, psychedelics, all pretty much all of them work primarily through a very, very specific activation of a specific subtype of the serotonin receptor, the 2A receptor. If you prevent that from happening, there's not really much in the way of psychedelic effects. So from one vantage point, you could say that all of these belief changes are occurring because of um, directly as a result of activation of the serotonin 2A receptor. But that doesn't really tell you much at all. While that may actually be true, it's entirely uninformative. And so there just needs to be another layer of understanding that is sort of more conceptually graspable. And so I, I think understanding psychedelic effects or psychedelic therapeutic effects in terms of more conventionally how we would understand how psychotherapy works 
And of course, you could try to reduce psychotherapy to interactions between molecules, but it's just not the most useful way of, of, of looking at that. We have other intermediary concepts can, that can better explain that. So I don't actually see that there is a clear conflict between those viewpoints. They're both true, but one of them just happens to be more useful in this context. More useful in the sense that understanding how beliefs change may give us a glimpse of how people's behavior and understanding of the world changes as well. Yeah, I think I think in terms of somebody's plain English understanding of what happens to them as they go through a psychedelic clinical trial, um, there there does need to be some intermediate concept between that and understanding whatever is going on at the receptor level. Dr. Sandeep Nayak, thank you very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. To Dr. Sandeep Nayak, he is assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. After the break, we're going to turn to another researcher, Dr. Matthew Johnson, to find out what conditions psilocybin seems to help. Dr. Johnson is Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University, where he's studying psychedelic medicines. Do we have any idea how psychedelics might be working? And that's a good question because, again, neurochemistry? We really don't have very good ideas about that. That's part of what they're looking at. How long might it take before the Food and Drug Administration approves a psychedelic drug for therapeutic use? Would the accompanying therapy have to be specified? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're delving into the possible uses of psychedelic compounds as medicines. Agents like psilocybin were off-limits to scientific study for decades. Over the last several years, however, investigators have reported remarkable results on the therapeutic use of such drugs for cancer patients, smokers, and others. Will they prove to be safe and effective in clinical as well as research settings? What do we need to know about them? 
We turn now to Dr. Matthew Johnson, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins. He is Susan Hill Ward Professor in Psychedelics and Consciousness. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Matthew Johnson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Johnson, you've been studying psychedelics now for quite a while, and I'm curious, between you, what you and your colleagues have done and what other researchers are doing, what kinds of conditions have drugs like psilocybin, or, or we can call them a natural product like psilocybin, been used for clinically? Well, there's a a few different disorders that have the, the most evidence behind them. Uh, one are substance use disorders, so work with both tobacco addiction as well as alcohol addiction. And you also have actually the, 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 the disorder that has the most research behind it uh, in terms of psilocybin helping folks uh, would be cancer-related distress. So these are people with, with depression and anxiety symptoms because of a cancer diagnosis. There's three double-blind studies published showing you know, large you know, reductions in depression and anxiety there. Um, that, of course, is related to the work um, using psilocybin to treat depression outside of cancer. It's a major depressive disorder. Uh, so a few studies have, have shown promising findings uh, there. There's you know, quite a few other things, disorders being studied, but we really don't ha we don't have enough evidence right now to say that they work for those disorders. If we want to include the the compound MDMA as a psychedelic, then certainly adding to that list MDMA in the treatment of PTSD, that's a, a very promising line of research. Dr. Johnson, I'm wondering, it may be premature, but do we have any idea how psychedelic compounds are working, how they change the brain? Yeah, we know a lot, but there's a whole lot to figure out. The We know a lot, not everything, about what's happening in the brain when someone is having a psychedelic experience. We know that, uh, that most of the what we call the classic psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD, they're, they're activating a, a particular subtype of serotonin brain receptor. And that's sort of the first domino in the chain that causes this, this cascade of effects. It, it changes the signaling within the neuron in a way that serotonin itself doesn't do. It has downstream effects on the glutamate system, which is another neurotransmitter system aside from serotonin. And then we know at, a, at another level of analysis above that there's this pretty a radical change in the way that the that the brain communicates with itself. What we don't know right now really is much about what are the long-term changes that happen in the brain that's responsible for you know someone 6 months later you know you know successfully having quit smoking and and crediting psilocybin sessions with for that or substantially less depressed, less, less anxious, you know, six months later, what's different in the brain at that point? And that's what we don't have a, a good answer to right now. We probably will at some point, a number of studies are addressing 
questions like that right now, but it's probably more of a, the easier way to answer, like, how is this working is at the psychological level. I mean, a lot of folks will, of course, focus on the biological changes. I mean, clearly this is a drug. It affects brain function. But the really weird thing about psychedelics in their therapeutic use is that they really are at the I consider them at the at, at sort of an intersection between a medication and a psychological intervention. So virtually all psychiatric medications, you know, work at at, at a fairly superficial level by treating the you know whatever symptoms or that are associated with a particular disorder. And so you know, as long as you keep taking that medication, the hope is that that reduction in symptoms will will last here with psychedelics clearly there's a this change in the nervous system something very interesting and different happens when someone's on a psychedelic you know fireworks are going off in the brain that shouldn't you know surprise anyone given how dramatic you know these subjective effects can be but it it appears that the key is that that experience that unfolds that is allowed by the drug it's that experience and the aftermath of it that people learn from and when people will describe healing from psychedelic sessions it sounds far more like you know people describing a, a successful course of of psychotherapy and probably even more so than that you know, more like a major life event, you know, people will describe, for example, you know, that having children may have changed their life. They can say, well, I was this type of person before and I changed in these ways. Um, They might say that about falling in love, getting married, visiting another culture for the first time, these can be just sort of these milestone events in someone's life. And, and we we're, we're, and even though clearly they are changing, these experiences change people you know, because they're not drugs. We, we, the question we typically ask is not, oh, what's different about the brain? You know, a year later, you know, someone's life has drastically changed. We don't, you know, some, let's say someone in a negative way, someone loses a loved one a year later and. Uh, let's say there's extended bereavement. The person is still, their life is very different. You could look at them and say, well, what's happening in the brain? What's the problem? What's, you know, and and that's a valid question, but it's not the most actionable question in the sense that the, while there's no doubt a biological correlate to any psychological experience, and, you know, there's something happening in the brain, presumably when someone says they've, They've learned their 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 life has shifted. They're they're acting in a different way. You know the 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 way that the change has come about is through the person's interactions with their own mind. Like they've done the healing themselves. They've um, processed traumatic material. They've come to view themselves in a different way. These different psychological descriptions. So I think that those are. Really, the more you can address this question about how it works in many different ways, but it's really that psychological level that we can get more traction from, particularly at, at, at the present time. So, Dr. Johnson, when someone comes to your laboratory, to your clinic, 
uh, and is participating in a clinical trial, whether it's because of tobacco addiction or distress around cancer or perhaps some trauma in their lives, what would be a, a typical session? What would it look like from beginning to end? Well, it starts uh, with the screening process. So someone will come in for a couple of days through for medical, psychiatric, you know, um, screening. So they're filling out lots of questionnaires and they're, they're doing a physical and we have blood samples analyzed. And, and so, you know, past that stage, if someone's qualified and still, you know, chooses to, to participate in a study, then there's a preparation phase. And that, that lasts anywhere between four and eight hours, typically spread across anywhere from, in most studies, you know, three or more, uh, sessions, um, an hour to two hours in length. It, it varies by the study, but, but this will include, you know, essentially instruction on how to handle the psychedelic session, you know, what to do if you feel anxious. And a major emphasis is really just on that rapport building in this preparation, because the preparation is done by the, so by the therapists, or they're sometimes called guides, the people who will be with the patient during the session. So the idea is you want to get to a place where that person feels they can completely trust the guides and whether it's laughter to tears, any emotion, you know, they're not embarrassed to, to, to express it. You know, some of their experiences might relate to really the, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets, you know, sometimes things are in that category or just very vulnerable or, or sensitive experiences. So you really want that trust, uh, there and that's going to decrease anxiety and and paranoia which can can pop up in these sessions you know anxiety about a third of the people at a, at a high dose will have some anxiety typically we don't see it creep into paranoia probably because you know we 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 do this this job with preparation and that probably decreases the likelihood that someone has a paranoid experience but it, it, after this preparation and rapport building period. And to be clear, those are, you know, meetings, you know, brief one to two hour meetings with the guides without any psilocybin involved. So this is all before there's any drug. And then they come in for a, the psychedelic session. And so they come in in the morning, fill out typically, depending on the study, some very brief questionnaires, but essentially in, we have, you know, check their blood pressure and, 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 and pulse. But, pretty quickly get to the point where we administer the psilocybin. We give it to them in a capsule and they swallow that capsule with a glass of, of water. And then it's going to be about 20 to 45 minutes or so before the person starts to feel the first effects of the psilocybin. And during that time, the, the guides will engage in, in light discussion with the volunteer it's often useful to to look through art books, which I have in the session room, basically with the idea of trying to get people out of their you know discursive intellect and, and into more, a more absorptive frame of mind. Because during the session, that's one of the instructions is just try to absorb these experiences. Don't you know overly analyze anything. Don't you know your job isn't to think about it per se. Do that afterwards. That's the integration. But just collect experiences. So, you know, on that session day when the person comes in and they swallow that pill and, 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 and now 
you know, say a half hour later, things are start to starting to kick in. And they say, oh, wow, I feel a little different. I think this is the psilocybin. Okay, well, let's let's get, uh, you know, lay you down for your experience. And so, you know, none of this is new that we've gone over this in the preparation phase, but the person will lay down on, on the couch, which we use in these sessions as, you know, other groups have used, a, you know, a bed, for example, but something to lay down on um, in this, you know, really well-decorated, you know, pleasing looking room, try to make it look at least like a hospital, you know, room or a laboratory as, as possible. But the person will lay down and then we'll put eye shades on them. Um, so essentially an eye mask, a, what you could call a blindfold, although that kind of has a, a more disturbing connotation. So we typically use the, the, the phrase eye mask and put that over their eyes and then earphones, put earphones on their ears um, through which a music program is played. The same music is played through loudspeakers that are in the room. So it's sort of this combination of while the headphones are on, they're really sort of cocooned and they're hearing these th- this music in a much more intense, direct way. But then when they remove the headphones, let's say if they need to you know, use the restroom later on in the day or they just they need to talk to the guides, um, that same music is playing throughout the room. So there's a continuity to that musical experience. But that's really, really it. The guides are there. It really guide is is a misnomer in the sense that they're not guiding someone through any through any anything in, in particular. You know, it's not like the person will describe. Oh, in my mind's eye, I see. You know, there's this. You know, I'm seeing this and this and that. You know, which direction should I go? It's not like the guide is gonna, you know, give you any particular pointers other than this very general principle of just pursue the experience uh d- don't don't shrink away from the experience if you see a monster go to the monster and look it in the eye you know what are you know what are you doing in my mind let's talk turkey you know if you see you know if there's a door open it if there's some pit that looks scary that you're afraid to jump into jump in it all within the mind's eye and so just this orientation towards engagement and and really then it's just you know sitting as a guide it's sitting back paying attention checking in with the person it could be very silent you know they say nothing for hours sometimes every half hour or so you check in and say you know how are you, how are you doing just let me know if you need anything you're doing perfectly fine just to see how they're doing um but letting them kind of have that internal experience and then we, we tell them to trust, let go and be open. No matter, don't try to control the experience, no matter what it's like, just try to take the orientation. Like that's, that's what you need to deal with. Whatever the experience happens to be like for you at the, at the moment. And, and then, you know, so it could involve a lot. The session could involve a lot of involvement from the guides, a lot of talking if the person's having a lot of difficulty and, and they're struggling with the experience, or it could like I said, it could be pretty silent and, and the guides, the, the, the work has largely been done in preparation and they may not need to be there. They're going to be there for safety reasons. Cause you don't know, but you know, it may have been that, that, you know, nothing really came up in the session where the guide, you know, needed to really intervene or to reassure the person, but the guide is there often will play some of that role because in about a third of the folks will have some 
degree of anxiety. And then eventually the, the, the substance wears off, you know, so if they came in around eight in the morning and got the process started around three thirty four in the afternoon, things are, things are, you know, and the person can feel that the drug is losing its intensity. And then by, you know, four thirty five o'clock or so, the person's essentially back, you know, and then you can have some brief discussion of the experience before, um, they're sent home with a, with a loved one, someone to drive them home, just like, um, you know, picking up someone who's gotten an, an endoscopy, you know, the person's not supposed to drive themselves home that, that day. And then there's typically a meeting the next day where we have more extended discussion that evening. We ask the person to write a narrative. It could be, you know, Hey, three or four bullet points that you write down, or it could be, we've had people write, you know, 20 pages and then turn that and in, literally into a novel. Um, so it's, 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 you can take any direction you want. The whole point is just to have some degree of processing and something for us to discuss on the next day. So the person comes in and, and typically what we'll do is, is, is have them read that narrative that they've written. And that can serve as a jumping off point to kind of probe them more about what happened ask them what they, what they thought, you know, what do you think about that now? And what do you make of this? And um, just to encourage them to, to process that experience and discuss it fully. And that's really it. Depending on the, on the study, there'll be other study visits. And, and, and for example, if it's the, the work I do to help people quit smoking, there's also this content, you know, peppered in there, more kind of standard talk therapy, you know, for, and um, helping people quit and then maintain to remain quit from smoking. But other than that, that's, that's essentially it in a nutshell. Well, Dr. Johnson, I think our listeners are beginning to recognize this is a kind of one and done approach whether, and again, this is all clinical research. This is not yet available so whether it's tobacco addiction or cancer distress or uh, an opioid dependency or depression or trauma, it's one session. And I suspect that the Food and Drug Administration may have a hard time understanding because virtually all of the medications that the FDA approves are sustained. That is to say, if you're taking an antidepressant, you take it not for one day, you take it for weeks, months, or years, mm -hmm. and ditto for blood pressure and anxiety and you know all of those other conditions that we are familiar with. How long do you think it might be before the therapeutic use of psychedelics is approved by the FDA? It's going to require some very creative thinking on their part. Um, the current trajectory looks to be about maybe a couple of years for MDMA. Um, and then for psilocybin, maybe three to four years. It doesn't appear it it it's it's probably not going to take that long. Um, the reason I can say this is because, and of course, this it depends on the results. So it's not FDA approved now, um, you know. And and the reason the, the way FDA approval work is ba is based on data. So you know, if the results start <laughs> looking not as you know, FDA is looking for safety and efficacy, and if, that starts to look different, then it might not be approved. But so far, things look – if the earlier phase results for these various disorders hold up and you see similar results in phase three, which we've already seen with MDMA and treating PTSD, one phase three study has been published and, you know, with really impressive results, then I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be 
you know, but for a, a few years, if the, these results all hold up in additional phase three studies, we'll see this likely approved by the FDA. But it, it's there's a number of things the FDA is challenged with here. FDA it does not is not mandated they, to regulate, and they can't regulate the practice of psychotherapy. And so that makes it this very awkward in the sense that, as I've described, much of this treatment really it, it resembles more of a psychological intervention uh, than you know a, a psychotherapy than it does a typical psychiatric medication. So, you know, the FDA is put in an interesting position. Will they will they be regulating the type of will they be mandating it, you know the type of therapy that's done? in conjunction with the psychedelic. Those are unsolved questions right now. Hopefully they won't be, you know, examining the music that's played and making, I mean, one can look at this kind of holistic intervention and dissect a whole lot of parts that um, really go beyond the basic questions of pharmacological safety and efficacy that the FDA is charged to deal with. So it'll be a challenge, but one of the things that, is actually favorable when from an FDA perspective is that all of the well I don't want to overstate it the vast majority of side effects are likely to be relatively localized uh, surrounding the session itself in other words you know it's it's very unlikely that you know you have one of these interventions where it's it's one two or only you know three exposures most of the studies have done that I and mean, sometimes it's more than one but it's typically very limited, like one, two, or three sessions um, in these various psychedelic uh, therapeutic studies. And it's not likely that you're going to have some side effect pop up, you know, six months from now. You know, the person came in, they had a, had you know one big psilocybin session to, to try to quit smoking or to address their depression. And let's say it's, you know, it's, it's, it's helped them. It, it's, it's, if there's a an adverse event, you know, an increase in blood pressure, if there's a, you know, a, a, an anxiety reaction during it, that that's going to happen on that day. You know, not likely, you know, 4 months from now. You know, and so what does that mean? You can have all of your safeguards in place. You can have your rescue medications in place. Oh, blood pressure's gone a little too high for our comfort. We can administer something to bring bring the blood pressure down a little bit. Oh, you know, if there's anxiety symptoms, like the, the best response there is personal reassurance, but if that doesn't work, then you also have anti-anxiety medications available. So, and the physician there to, to administer them. So there is a favorable aspect of this in, in the sense, just in the same way, like with surgery, you know, most of your risk is packed onto that day of surgery. And, and, you know, then in the short time following it, same thing here, we can have all those layers of safety on to the clinical team and as part of the intervention. In contrast, you know, you go on some antidepressant, typical antidepressant, and, you know, maybe you're on it for months and months and months, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're a year into it or so, and then then only then you realize, oh, now, you know, now you've lost your sex drive or some other, maybe, a, you know, I've, I've known older people who have been on, let's say, an anti-anxiety medication for years and they handled it fine. But now, now it starts to push them into some dementia or, you know, makes them prone to have falls because now they're 
they're older, you know, their brain is changing. And, and, um, and so now all of a sudden this, you know, medication they were on for sometimes maybe decades. Now all of a sudden this side effect starts creeping up, you know, decades into its use. So in that sense, psychedelics are, you could view them as very favorable and having that kind of targeted intervention. Dr. Matthew Johnson, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Matthew Johnson, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's the Susan Hill Ward Professor in Psychedelics and Consciousness. You know, Terry, I think the Food and Drug Administration is going to have some real challenges trying to figure out how to approve a drug or a series of compounds, psychedelics, that might only be used once or twice or three times. And also, what about this psychotherapeutic process, you know, the music that they use, the way in which the psychotherapist interacts with the patient during the session? Well, the fact that Dr. Johnson pointed out that the, the psychedelic therapies are kind of at the intersection between the drug, which clearly has some pretty profound effects, and the therapeutic experience itself, which also is very important, that is going to pose the FDA some challenges. As he pointed out, they don't regulate the practice of medicine. They don't tell psychotherapists what to do or how to do it. That's going to be a big challenge. You know, the other thing I find so intriguing is when we have interviewed Dr. Bruce Grayson about the near-death experience. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a psychiatrist at University of Virginia. He says, you know, people have this one-time event. And it changes their lives for the rest of their lives. Exactly. And it, and it seems as if this psychedelic experience is somewhat similar in that regard. It certainly does. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,317. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where we invite you to share your comments. Let us know what you think about today's interview. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. This week, the podcast includes an interview with Dr. Sandeep Nayak about his fascinating research on how people change how they view consciousness following a psychedelic experience. We also include more of the interview with Dr. Matthew Johnson. You'll find the show on our website by Monday morning. And again, I find this interaction between psychotherapy, this concept of a psychotherapeutic experience versus pure pharmacology, which is something I love, receptor sites, that's, that's an interesting place where, where it all comes together. Absolutely. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you so much for listening. Please do join us again next week.